week of a time when someone had asked David Duchovny online, how many bees are you, David Duchovny? Mm-hmm. He said, I am an ever-changing number of bees. Hmm. So He should have said, it's swarm in here. <laughs> Welcome to Super Duper Stitches. The paranormal podcast where we break down the science behind the spooky. I'm Jake. I'm Wyatt. And we are back for not only another week, but also the conclusion to our Super Duper Stitches special report on the missing 411 shit. <laughs> Or cases, as some might call them. Nope. <laughs> that is right. Uh, before we get into it today, though, Jake, do you have any updates? I, yeah, I think we, it's it's worthwhile to cover this whole FBI looking into Bigfoot thing, I think. Mm. We, I've seen mm. it around for a while. I mean, it's kind of old news at this point. We never covered it when it first came out because it seemed to us as just a non-story. But uh, everyone has been all losing their minds about it. Uh, people saying, oh, yeah, the FBI was looking, like, investigating Bigfoot. Uh, they released this 20-page report on it. What happened was the FBI released... It is kind of weird how they did it. They just tweeted out a link to archived PDFs <laughs> of this stuff with no comment, which is kind of strange <laughs> of them, but... Oh, whatever here. Yeah, it's just here you go. But it's, yeah, just from um, a while back, a guy wrote it to the FBI saying, hey, could you test the samples I have, like hair samples? Right. And also asking them, hey, do, like I, we heard reports about you guys testing some hair samples before and not being able to tell whether or not they're from any it was this, that, or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Can you confirm this? It's a very quick read because it's just a bunch of scanned like letters and it's just a correspondence thing happening. It's not like a huge 20-page conclusion summary thing from the FBI. It's just here's the correspondence between an FBI agent and this mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And people apparently couldn't be bothered to so much as skim even beyond the first few pages because they just saw hair sample not related to any specific species mm-hmm. and knew it was fbi adjacent and like oh the fbi found some kind of something and they tested it and they couldn't link it to any known species <laughs> that's not what happened nope <laughs> what they did was the guy wanted to know oh is it true that you guys tested some hairs and couldn't link it to any specific species on this continent? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. We can't find any case like that, but whatever. It's like, well, I have these hairs. Can you test them? Like, sure. So they did this mm-hmm. guy a favor. And the end, at the end of the correspondence, they're did, like, yeah, so those were... Taste test. <laughs> taste test of the hairs. Like, yep, yeah, this is They deer. didn't know how to test them. They just... <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a member of the deer family. Thanks for playing. Yep. And that's the whole thing. It has morphed into Bigfoot. Exactly. It's like, oh, the FBI studied Bigfoot or investigated Bigfoot. It must therefore be real. Mm-hmm. It's validation of this thing we always believed. This does not, because they were not actually doing that and what they found was deer, doesn't mean Bigfoot isn't real, even though it isn't. Oh, thank God. No. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just goofing because I like to rile you up, boy. No, no, it's okay. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. But, uh, <laughs> but the... um. It's just, it's also not, you know, this confirmation that it definitely is real because this government agency was looking into it. Mm-hmm. They were just doing a favor to a guy and they didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. So if you don't learn anything else from this show, please at least keep in mind, don't just post things based on headlines, mm-hmm. like repost things. If you see a headline, that sounds sensational. Nowadays in this kind of clickbait area, area, clickbait era. It's a clickbait area. I'd yeah. say all the internet is a clickbait area. Very true. But based on just how people try and drive traffic nowadays, headlines tend to be very sensational, often very inaccurate. 20 things Bigfoot won't ever believe. <laughs> exactly. You got to read the article and not just post based on the headline itself. It's true. And read the article and then use some critical thinking before spreading mm-hmm. that shit everywhere so that it becomes so viral and so just because, yeah, most people just see the headline and they mm-hmm. don't. That's all they get around to. And that can be dangerous. That's, I mean, it's not a good thing. This, in this case, it's a harmless, like, oh, whatever, just some goofy stuff. But especially in North America, as we approach another election cycle, exactly. <laughs> Please think more. Get ready for disinformation. Yes. So, yeah, Bigfoot. That's it for my Indeed. update. Do you have any updates? I do not. Um, cool. So I say we launch right in. Let's launch right in. All right. Well, last week we talked about David Martin. The boy who vanished or was perhaps forcibly adopted slash eaten by an unconfirmed but totally real and absolutely extant pipetalate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in North America and... A Redditor who bumped into a smellless grinning phantom lady in the forest who would have taken him so hard if he hadn't given his father's shoulder a big old shake. 
This was all to establish the general atmosphere or profile of the missing 411 cases, which, if you haven't listened to that episode yet or have just forgotten, are a series of strange missing persons cases, uh, reports that have been collected and discussed by ex-cop and Burt Reynolds stunt double, David Politis. Mm-hmm. Today we're going to get into what makes the 411 cases so tantalizing for so many. We'll also talk a bit about who David is being and what he's doing in embodying the voice of the missing 411 conspiracy. We'll reveal that while the missing 411 cases are a spooky, even fun idea, they are ultimately a kind of grand campfire story rather than any kind of real science. We'll then talk about how real scientists are themselves highly susceptible to narrative and belief and why we all, as humans, really got to remember to be wary of our tendency to go with our guts rather than our gray matter. So let's recap the things that make the 411 cases so fun for so many. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's fair to say that they are sort of a combination of the familiar and the very darkly real meeting the unknown. So people don't go missing, get lost or perish in the wilderness. They vanish, disappear Mm -hmm. or are taken. This is language more often associated with like magic tricks, suggest some kind of agency regarding whatever happened to those that never returned. Uh, there's also the reappearance of bodies in a sensibly already searched locale. So the the searchedness of a location is implied as totally pervasive and purifying. So the later discovery of a body, again, suggests something grimly supernatural or active. The fact that, oh, there was nothing there before, and now there are bodies there? That's weird. Right. We checked that area, so something must have put it back or reappeared after something happened. Mm-hmm. Further, institutional powers are basically shady, compartmentalized entities, so... Most often, this is the National Park Service itself. David will complain that, well, you know, it's not the employees you're interacting with on the field. In the field, it's it's the upper echelon. It's these top tier employees who are unwilling to yes. divulge the truth about what's actually going on here. It's the general kind of idea of authority, powers, conspiracy, that classic, kind of thing. Classic mixture. Mm-hmm. And it's also just the kind of aspect of oh, we've all been there, you know, outside or hiking or just being in the outdoors. So could have happened to any of us. Yeah. What if I got taken? Uh-huh. Finally, there's also the legitimizing power of the rogue objective authority figure. <laughs> so Polites kind of bills himself. He, well, I mean, he is an older white male ex-cop who also just so happens to be a harmless and humble almost scientific discoverer of a pattern. He didn't ask to be the voice of the missing 411 cases, Jake. He just stumbled across it. It just is a pattern he saw and he just felt called to action. So it surely is not at all related that before he got into this, he also was a very avid Bigfoot hunter. (laughs) Right, but it's not Bigfoot that's doing this stuff. No, no, he would never. So who or what is David Pilates? (laughs) First, a quote. This is a direct quote from an interview with David Pilates. Now, I don't deal in concept and theories. Two things you won't find in any of my books are any theories about what's happening or any suspects who did this. What I do is lay out a series of facts. I'd let you come to whatever decision you want to come to. Even though the facts are very strange, there are, factually, 59 geographic clusters of missing people in North America that fit the profile points that we laid out. And the biggest cluster in the world is Yosemite National Park. Now, some people may say, well, yeah, but you know that probably has the most visitors. Well, yeah, but if you look at the circumstances that we've laid out for these missing people, I don't care if it's downtown Paris or downtown New York. That's strange. (laughs) And a lot of these people have never been found, even though they disappeared in an area where they should have been found. Canines should have been able to track them. There should have been some evidence or professional trackers should have been able to follow these people. These weren't voluntary disappearances. There were no mental health issues. Where are these people? Now, one of the predominant points we haven't talked about yet, but boulders, boulder fields, and granite are somehow involved in this. Meaning bodies are found in boulder fields, people disappear in boulder fields or around granite. And that's another one of those points that, we, that came out after reading hundreds and hundreds of reports. Well, where's probably the biggest boulder field and granite location in the world other than Yosemite? Hmm. I don't know, that's strange, but when you look at the surrounding area and how many people have disappeared in and around Yosemite, coupled with other locations in the world that also have these boulder fields or granite, it starts to look odd. (laughs) So, we can see this as two things. One is Pilatus as the voice of the prophet. He can be sort of seen as the expert whose word is based on 
research, facts, and a lack of bias to one cause or another. So the sort of pick your own adventure thing for a listener to go on here. In other words, he's this pure investigator akin to a person compelled by circumstances we already described to manufacture and disseminate their message versus Polites as a peddler of narrative. Mm -hmm. In other words, presenting all the parts of a pattern but taking no stance on it or offering no explanation is taking a stance. Yeah. It's highly unlikely that he's unaware of the manipulative power of his actions and he has so many books to sell. <laughs> um, Can I also just point out a quote that I really liked of his when you're talking about the, these patterns with granite and stuff and all these things. By all means. There was one quote I found that was just... He's making these correlations and stuff, and one was, quote, People disappear and are found in the middle of berry bushes. They go missing while picking berries, and some are found while eating berries. Connection between some disappearances and berries cannot be denied. <laughs> so it's just like anything that happens to happen in more than one case is suddenly a very important causal element of the story. Exactly, and he will always draw this link, but never explain what it is. Yes. <laughs> There's a connection here. I'm not going to say exactly why it <laughs> exists or how it means anything, but man, am I going to bring your attention to it. <laughs> so I thought it would be kind of fun to... Let's let's give him the benefit of, a, of the doubt and assume that he is kind of interested in helping find these people. Mm -hmm. If that is the case, and he's kind of called to this mission, his site should perhaps in some ways resemble, oh, I don't know, the main search and rescue site. Yeah, that makes sense. In at least broad strokes. So I'm going to open these both up now. Here's Politus's site. I accidentally stumbled across it last week. I was looking for stuff and didn't realize it was specifically his. I thought it was other people compiling it just who were interested. Didn't realize it was the official thing. And it is <laughs> a mess. It's real nasty. <laughs> it's not good. He did not use Squarespace. He did not use Squarespace. He used oblong shape <laughs> zone. And not even Weebly, which, whose name would imply that that would do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, basically we have Can-Am, Canada, America, Missing Project, and Missing 411 in gigantic, a gigantic banner, basically, that takes up mm -hmm. most of the screen. And then down below are these tiny, tiny little links that all seem to redirect to... They all seem like they might be titles of, I don't know, books. Mm. Hmm. Instead of being about specific cases and stuff or about you know, how you can report stuff you've heard of to try and add to the data of these things happening. It's like, oh, books, buy my books. Lots of books. You go to just humble main association for search and rescue. We've got a home, active units, bylaws, officers, standards, news, events, training, minutes, public documents, members, photos, contact, donate, and it's laid out real nice. I mean, we can go as far as real nice, but it is laid out <laughs> comp competent for the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. By comparison, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Not like, say, superduperstitious.com. <laughs> Recently rated top cool page. For this podcast. For this specific <laughs> podcast. Um, we can also listen to just two minutes of an interview with Politis to see how he introduces his topic. All righty. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, thanks a million, guys. I appreciate being here. So I guess the the first things first, if we want to file it under that category, uh, for everybody listening out there, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the missing 411 phenomenon, which began as a book series, is that correct? So I like that the host even suggests that it is a phenomenon and a book series before David even opens his mouth. <laughs> yep. Correct. Uh, I'm a former police officer, spent 20 years in California and municipal department there. And after I left, I started to do some research in a national park. And some two national park rangers knew me from other books I'd written. They were following me around. Uh, later on, I left the park, went back to my room. Independently, they each came back and went to the room, knocked on the door and said that they had something to tell me. And they knew who I was. They knew I had the investigative work I'd done in the past. And they said, uh, we have a story for you. So David's first words are not to provide any kind of specifics, but to instead read off a general shorthand CV of basic, what I'm going to call credentials of apparent authority, mm -hmm. which is to say that he was a cop for 20 years, mm -hmm. went to 
do some research, <laughs> during which two park rangers had something to tell him and followed him around. And what he doesn't say is that his published works that they knew him from prior to the missing 411 series were on Bigfoot, mm-hmm. as Jake mentioned earlier. Just a little more to go here. Do we know how he, like, what his actual oh, position was as a cop? He wasn't a I detective, don't. was he? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so either. Just like a beat cop or something? He's like, oh, I know how to do he, anything. It, and from from what I've heard, too, he has never explained exactly why he left. He just he just it, left it, one day. He's not a cop anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making enough money off this. And uh, what they'd said was is that they had worked at other parks and they had worked other missing persons cases in those national parks. They eventually got together, they talked about, compared notes at the park that they were at, and they thought there were some peculiarities there that needed to be looked into. Namely, during a search, during that first seven to 10 days that someone goes missing, there's a lot of publicity, there's a lot of press, there's a lot of people looking for the missing person. At the end of that seven to 10 days, there's nothing. Everything stops, there's no follow-up, there's no investigation, there's essentially nothing more that happens. That's a massive generalization about missing person searches, protocols, and timelines. Hmm. And when they looked into it, they thought that the locations that these people went missing were odd. Uh, many of them went missing in places that weren't deep in the woods, but uh, might have been fairly close to the center of the park or a populated area or a location where a lot of people should have seen what happened. Hmm. And... They, the more they looked into it and the more they tried to find out information, they were stymied themselves. They couldn't get some reports. And they thought the whole thing was just strange. So I said I'd look into it. I left the park the next day, called a couple law enforcement friends. I said, this is what I heard. See if there's any validity to it. You know, later on, they called me back and said, wow, there's something here. There are a lot of disappearances and there's not a lot of follow up and there's not a lot of information available. So that's basically the core of the intrigue for mm-hmm. David's work, and he's already articulated it at just 2 minutes 38 seconds. Fairly reasonable and concerning kind of concept um, insofar as it suggests there are many open missing, missing persons cases that we may already feel should be resolved. And yeah, undeniable intrigue, but we still don't really have any specifics. I also wanted to go throw, on, please. I, I was just checking during that too, and he was a police detective. He was a police detective. And he basically just retired. I see. Approval for what's called deferred vesting status. Which mm. I guess is like, oh, after a certain point, you can just kind of, you know, you've done your time and you can you can get out of there and get a yeah. kind of pension thing. So, yeah. He, Thanks for doing what you did, kid. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, we can give him credit for being an actual detective and not being like randomly discharged or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shadily <laughs> kicked out. No, he, he did detective work and he retired and now this is his passion project kind of thing that's cool and i guess that is something i didn't really draft for myself today but the idea that he may very well drink the kool-aid that he is selling as well probably but yeah let's uh let's just take a look at some comments on the video and uh see what we can learn about david's audience at least the ones that are willing to participate in some kind of communal discussion sounds good to me maltil lorids 2007 says listen very well to me the government knows what's going on they know it. <laughs> I take David Politis to be a sincere and conscientious person just trying to bring light to a very bizarre set of circumstances, says Mr. J. Ra 210. The national parks don't want the bad press. It's both economic and political. Just a man, 6972. <laughs> but you know how national parks are up for re-election most years, so they <laughs> need to kind of keep their publicity as good as possible. And finally, Andrew Sorensen... One word, paranormal. We'll never know why or how. These entities slip in and out of our reality as easy as we walk through any doorway in our home. 28 upvotes. Yeah, people tend to hold Politis up as a kind of true conspiracy white knight using pattern detection and careful digging into the data to get some truth out of an ongoing phenomenon, quote unquote. But they are, in my opinion, in Jake's opinion, I would say, playing themselves. (laughs) As we'll show, Politis is instead... Politis? Politis? What the fuck? Politis. Politis? Yeah. All right. Is instead entirely... No, we, we established I at the beginning like, of last episode and then just slowly devolved from there. Yeah. Politis. Politis. <laughs> Politis is instead entirely unscientific in his half-claims, cruel in his willingness to profit off the dead, and generally not so popular among actual search and rescue folks who have almost anywhere posted called him on what he is, and I'll link to that. Hmm. So that's right. a pretty good kind of establishment of 
of what we're dealing with, what these are, who the guy is behind them, and what that all kind of is like. Yeah, and so I think we can get into breaking that down a little further, but yeah, first... Yeah, a little more of the, of the science involved in it, but I think... We've got this nice beer zombie dust. Yeah, we can take a little break and do a little kind of segment thank, before we get into... Thanks uh, to uh, a friend of the show, Mike. Yeah, zombie uh, dust is from his favorite brewery in Chicago. What's it called? Three Floyds. So I think it's time we get into a segment of... The Quaff. Oh. This doesn't... What's happening? This isn't... Oh. I mean, it's Bossa Nova, but... This can only mean one thing. Oh, oh God. God. The wheels. The coin. Were they here the whole time? I don't think so, but now they are here. I guess we're in a segment of... Shadowlands Roulette. Hey, guys. I know it's been a while. Sorry. There's like a hot air coming off of them right now. I think I think we've neglected them for a little too long. Fuck. Well, the Shadowlands uh, is a website from the mid '90s. '94 to be 94. exact. '94, um, full of just different user-submitted stories of haunted uh, stuff. And Shadowlands Roulette is when um, we. <sighs> I really cannot recall whether we built these things or whether we found them or they found us, to be honest, because I feel like they just did. I think maybe. But there are two essentially giant Price is Right style wheels that can be spun, uh, one of which selects from a series of places in North America, or I guess the United States, Mm -hmm. and one of which selects from all the rest of the entire fucking world. <laughs> we flip this enormous cursed coin. It, it determines which of the two wheels we spin. We spin one of those two wheels, choose a story from whichever location it finds, and uh, read it you verbatim. terrified by the horrors from the site. So, it's been so long. You know what? I'll flip the coin first, and then right. you'll spin the wheel, I guess. So Okay. Oh, ow, ow, ow. It's hot to the touch. Okay. <laughs> It's, we got to do this more often, I think. We, I think we so. can't let them get this way. All right, I'm just going to just, I guess... Let me get you some oven mitts real quick. Okay, yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. So this is all very good for the audio experience that everyone's having at home. All right, I got this here. It's kind of still burning me through the thing. I'm just going to flip it. Yeah. Oh, man. Ooh, it's a good the one. oven mitt did nothing. <laughs> and it let it on the repulsive wheel of other countries. Oh, God. Uh, I didn't you want say the oven with you. To, <laughs> you want the oven mitt to climb up there? Um, you think that'll help at all? Yeah, sure. I don't know. Sure. Alright, here, take my mic. Okay. I have both mics now. What was that, Jake? Oh, just talking about a thing that usually you talk about. Alright, you're getting up there. How's, how's it feeling up there? Really hot. Okay. Really gross. Maybe, okay, Maybe it's super should. sticky today. Great. Um, okay, just uh, just give it a give it a go. All right, and we're going looking at going, landing on Ooh, Denmark. Denmark. Hey, right. we have a friend in Denmark. Hey, hey Selena. Selena. Hope you're listening. Um, all right, Denmark. There's one. <laughs> I guess that's the one you're gonna do. I think I have to. <clears throat> Copenhagen, Dana Cup. <laughs> a little boy got killed playing soccer there, and he has come back to haunt the place. Hmm. <laughs> what a terrifying tale. Pretty frightening, eh? So many details about the horrors that happened there. Yeah, I tell you. <laughs> I honestly am still a little scared. Maybe we'll feel better if we listen to another story. Um. I guess All right, you want to go I'll ahead and flip the... I'll just keep this glove on. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, go ahead and flip the <laughs> coin. Oh, looks like the repulsive wheel of other countries again. Again, okay. Well, I guess um, I guess I'll give you my microphone. All right. All right, looking good, Jake. Want to point one of them my way? Nope. All right, thanks. All right, I'm up here. Yeah? Yeah, you're right. This does not feel good. All right, I'm just going to make a quick... All right. Ugh. Quite as strong a oh, spin as we usually get, but I don't want to. Sorry, right. it seems to be there. getting yeah. faster anyway. It's true. Okay, we're landing on Ooh, Malaysia. Malaysia. All right, let me yeah. head on over to Malaysia and see 
what I can find there. There are quite a lot of stories in Malaysia. Nice. And I have landed on Kuala Lumpur, Highland Towers, a tragic event that will forever live in the memory of Malaysians. One of the three blocks of apartment at this place fell apart due to landslide and heavy downpour prior to that fateful day. And Highland Towers have become famous for claims of being a very haunted place. Voices of the dead can be heard at night, and ghostly figures are said to have appeared at the scene. There are also a story about a taxi driver who picked up a woman passenger at the middle of the night and being asked to drop her at the place. <laughs> she left a bag, and the poor taxi driver found it to be full of blood. Oh, shit. It's uh, like a Godspeed, You Black Emperor song. <laughs> yeah. I open up her suitcase, and it's full of blood. For 10 minutes. Yep. So... <laughs> That was a pretty chilling tale as well. Whew. My goodness. Feeling scared. I The smoke has kind of stopped rising off of these various artifacts, so... They're now just throbbing. Yeah, which I guess is a good sign? I hope so. so I think that concludes this round of Shadowlands Roulette. <laughs> also, the beer's good. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, the beer's, the beer's great. <laughs> Plus the picture. It's a cool, cool bottle as well. Also cool to have a bottle. They seem to be kind of in they're short supply out. these days. Yeah, they're yeah. for. I guess cans are easier to produce. So, back into the four one one stuff. I'd like to describe what we could call the inference con that David Politis is pulling. So interviews with Politis essentially repeat three major steps. Politis describes one or more unresolved missing persons cases with narrative importance placed squarely on the most inexplicable objective aspects of the case and how they do not jive with what can only be described as a quote-unquote typical missing persons case, mm. often literally using a semi-hushed voice. <laughs> Politis reaffirms that he is a person of just the facts and goes on to explain the ostensibly formal methods he or others have used to claim a clear answer to each and or all of these cases. He also describes a vetting process in which cases that have any evidence of human involvement, such as murder or abduction, voluntary disappearance, such as mental health issues or things where someone was just like, bye, mm -hmm. or animal involvement, namely predation or scavenging. Are, or some kind of animal doing some sort of cover-up for the person. Yeah, or abducting them and taking them away and raising them as their own. As big yes. <laughs> are all removed from his data set, leaving only cases that have no clear explanatory variable. Mm-hmm. Finally, applied methods inevitably fail to draw an explicit conclusion. More often than not, we are told because some institutional power, most often the National Park Service itself, was unwilling to divulge information. David won't take a stance on what actually happened, but insists that while we have all the facts, they just don't add up to anything within the realm of conventional understanding. Mm. Even still, he wants other people to come to that conclusion. He says, I'm not an expert in these things. I'm, I'm an not expert in everything else up until this point. I'm I'm, yeah. someone, I'm an authority figure on this stuff you should trust, but I, I can't make conclusions. But I'm not going to come to a conclusion. So he leaves his listeners. I wonder if he did that as a detective on the police force <laughs> for a while. <laughs> Maybe that's why he left. <laughs> yeah. His partner had to solve everything. He put all the facts yeah. together and then just wouldn't say what it was. Like, But no, David, we know what it is. We can tell. He's like, I'm, I can't say. He's like, it's it was this guy like we know it was him like i i can't i can't say if you think that's what it is so maybe go, sure yeah we can we can do that but but as we'll hear later he might have said but there's also this this and this <laughs> you'll see all this together leaves his listener in an inference trap we are obliged to infer that something mysterious and possibly nefarious is going on Let's listen to another clip from an interview with Politis to see how this works in action. Mm -hmm. In this clip, taken from the same interview we heard from before, Politis is working to establish further intrigue on these cases. He's just described how known criminal charges are filed in these cases. Yet if you look at that case and you compare it to the profile points that we've established in six years or seven years of research, you'll notice that it's a dead-on match. Happens at a remote campsite. The parents state they turn around, the child's gone. They bring in canines. The canines can't pick up a scent. They bring in cadaver dogs that smell the trucks and the vehicles that were at the scene in case they transported a dead body. They can't pick up a scent. All of these things start to lead that, wow, 
you know what, that's one of the profile points that are established in the missing 411 books. After reading thousands of cases, the handlers bring a dog to the scene, the dog turns around, sits down, doesn't want to even, can't find a scent. They bring in cadaver dogs. Cadaver dogs look around. They can't find a scent. Zombie dogs. Uh, the parents say, you know, <laughs> the child was right here. We turned around and it was gone. Well, it sounds stupid when you first hear that. No. But the reality <laughs> of it is it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times if you read the books. And law enforcement, when they get frustrated, they'll say, well, the only thing we can think of is that the parents or the relatives or somebody in the area must have taken the kid. But there's no evidence. And... Like I keep saying, if you're going to accuse somebody, why don't you arrest them? So, wow. Whisper in a conspiratorial fashion much, Polites. <laughs> Polites. <laughs> Polites repeats a series of details in their entirety almost immediately after initially stating them. So specifically, these cadaver dogs, the kids are gone after the parents turn around, etc. All to explicitly tie back into his 411 books that mm-hmm. he mentions twice <laughs> in just over a minute. In this next clip, again from the same interview, Polides is... Polides? Politis. Politis. God damn it. (laughs) I said it sardonically before, but now I'm just trapped myself. Politis is getting into one of his alleged profile phenomena, namely the tendency for infants and small children to go missing and later be discovered in locations that would have been seemingly impossible for them to reach on their own power. It's easy for us as adults to understand that small children covering phenomenal distances is highly unusual. Small children going up in phenomenal heights is highly unusual and probably not, it it probably can't occur. So how do they get there? These incidents occur in areas where there aren't other people. It's not like somebody could have taken the kid and done this or carried them or forcibly abducted them. These are in areas that are really remote when these things occur. And there's no evidence. Remember, there's no dogs that can track this because that's the most common profile point. Canines can't track the victim. Or professional trackers that are brought in find no tracks leaving that scene. So how does the victim get from point to point? That's the commonality that nobody can understand. And that's probably one of the most concerning points that I get from readers is how does this happen? And where does this information come from? It comes from search and rescue reports, law enforcement reports, missing person reports, interviews with families, interviews with uh, law enforcement people or search and rescue people. And that's where most of the information gets gleaned from. So it's kind of amazing to listen to David essentially answering questions with further questions yes, and supporting tenuous claims with only more tenuous data. (laughs) By his own admission in this clip, he's gleaning information from reports and in his own way, coming to a conclusion about what that information means. Right. He just never explicitly states it. Yeah. He highlights the uncertainties and amplifies a tone of regularity and leaves it at that. This is something that he won't give us an answer to, he says, because he doesn't have one. So we are left to infer one for ourselves. So now let's listen to what happens as the hosts immediately help David's case by quite openly dismissing the conclusions of law enforcement as a cover-up. Dave, in one of the cases that you had just mentioned where the child was carried up to a height that you guys had to travel, uh, use ropes to travel to, in, in the film... It mentions that, or at least the law enforcement that was interviewed, uh, they seem to mention that they believed it was an animal attack. Uh, when you're, when you're going through and researching these cases, cause, uh, you guys don't, you don't look at cases that are definitely animal attacks. So I, it sounds like law enforcement is trying to make pieces fit, um, to, to solve a case. <laughs> Great point, guys. Great point. Great point. Oh boy. So initially, when we looked at this case, Exactly correct. The press reports, the interviews the sheriff gave said, oh yeah, it was a mountain lion attack. Well, the victim's dad wasn't at the scene and always thought that this was unusual. Well, at the press conference on this event, uh, search and rescue people that had gone up there and recovered the remains had told the father that they found the pants of the child turned inside out at the scene. Yet at the press conference, the sheriff told him, hey, put the pants right side out and let's show them. And when the dad asked the sheriff why he did that, he walked away from the father. So the dad takes all the evidence and all the reports and presents it to multiple mountain lion experts. 
and said, hey, what's your opinion about what happened to my son? And each of them said, well, it wasn't an animal predation case, and I don't know why the sheriff said it. And on all of the clothing that was found, there was no blood on any of the clothing. So the sheriff made a statement to quell the community to make it appear as though they had the answers. And in reality, there were no answers. So while it could be argued that the sheriff in this story did act oddly, what Politis is doing here, as he does almost everywhere, is actively walk a case back from explanation to question. Mm -hmm. His aim in all things is to generate speculative charge to answer every question with a further question and leave his audience in a state of ravenous inferential madness, I would say. (laughs) We are told we cannot trust anything except for the very nonspecific details that Politis has curated for us. And as ever, we are reminded that he has a movie and many books, all of which can be worth our time. In other words, David Politis is one of the worst kinds of people. (laughs) He is a man who, under the guise of some kind of subversive private eye, is essentially profiting off the tragedy of missing persons cases, spinning objective details into a blurred cloud of conspiratorial hoopla. The maddening part is that his wager that he can lure us into buying his narrative is actually quite sound. And it all has to do with how we're wired. Mm. Science, Wyatt. The S word. (laughs) It's not just there to make high school and college boring. Its ultimate goal is to figure out how and why the things we see or experience are and do the things they are and do. Science asks, what's going on with all this reality stuff anyway? (laughs) Scientists are intrigued by questions that are based on observation of objective phenomena and the search for some kind of overarching or causal pattern. So far, not unlike Politis. One of many major relevant differences between scientific pursuit and Politis' pseudoscientific inquiry is that science requires a working hypothesis, a stance, an opinion, a belief about what might be going on. It takes the form of basically an educated guess based on stuff that is already known that can explain the particular phenomenon at hand, and that guess has to then be testable. David explicitly avoids taking a stance or offering any kind of tangible single explanation for what could be happening. And so his jumble of strange data points are like a collection of support beams for whatever concept a person feels fits their own expectations about the situation. Mm -hmm. The time we get to this point, we've been given plenty of context cues that something weird is going on. (laughs) Believe it or not, in science, hypotheses are actually generated to be disproven. We're proposing that something might work in a particular way, then we set out to see whether we can show that this is false. If we fail to disprove our proposed explanation, then, yeah, our best guess remains the best operating explanation for how things might work. Mm -hmm. In other words, we can apply a narrative to our circumstances in order to make it comprehensible, but objective reality should always get the last word. Mm. Even then, scientists, too, often fall prey to their own biases their own desires about what they feel is going on given their data and their understanding about their question. Most of the time, this is an innocent desire to simply see things the way they think they are. Uh, We call this observer or confirmation bias, and this essentially describes the tendency for a person to draw fallacious conclusions or to selectively focus on certain patterns or points of data when those conclusions or data support their personal views on a subject. Often, this involves cherry-picking data, excluding variables that are too messy or noisy, or only measuring certain aspects of a phenomenon. But this bears no similarity to our dear friend David, right? (laughs) Uh, A simple and fun example of confirmation bias is the state of Florida. (laughs) So if you know much at all about the U.S., just the invocation of the name Florida probably already has your mind racing with bonkers stories of drugged-up weirdos fighting alligators or someone driving a fan boat through a Walmart. Yes. These are often called Florida man stories. <laughs> I think I may have casually mentioned this in a prior episode. I don't really recall, but I wanted to expand on it in detail now. Florida only sounds so bizarre because of two examples of confirmation bias. Hmm. Florida is the third most populous state in the whole country, meaning there's already a higher probability of people doing weird stuff simply because there are more people. That's crazy. I never knew it was the third most I didn't populous. Think of that either. Yeah, it's California, Texas, and then Florida. Holy shit. I never really realized that until looking into it today. Even more to the point, Florida is the only state with a completely open book policy on government uh, records. Mm -hmm. Anywhere else in the U.S., if police, say, arrest a guy wearing only body paint for trying to copulate with a tree in a public park, um, (laughs) journalists might not find out that easily. They could ask for an arrest report, but they might not get it right away, and it might not contain any details until or unless a trial actually occurs Mm -hmm. in Florida. If a journalist wants to know the details of an arrest, they get it. 
Wow. And all just in complete yeah. gory detail. Exactly. <laughs> so there aren't necessarily more weird crimes there. It's just easier to find out about them. And because those stories are sensational, journalists seek them out to report on. Mm. Confirmation bias in science tends to also follow a pattern of only seeking out things that fit the profile you want. As I said, this isn't typically a totally conscious attempt to bend the facts to your will. But after a long time, it can end up that way and become full-blown fraud even. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of this is the inherent appeal of positive results. So true. It's tricky to publish on things or even just like get anyone interested in results that are negative. Since we're trying to disprove hypotheses, that's kind of the whole point. When you succeed in disproving a hypothesis, no one really gives a shit. Yeah. Like, oh, that's not how the world works. Cool. Thanks. Right. But that's a step closer <laughs> to understanding how things, how really, things are. really are. Exactly. And so it is just as, as important but it's just not as interesting to us as living beings. We want to know. We want the sensation. Right. We don't want to know non-answers. Like, well, the answer isn't this. So what? Cool, thanks. But what is the answer? Well, we don't know yet, but this isn't it. So, Well, why are you telling me all this? Yeah. yeah. The draw of that kind of publication, of, of doing things that give positive results, led to uh, the whole Wansink thing. I think it was Wansink, Wansink. You heard him, Brian Wansink. He was a nutrition guy. He was studying nutrition. Mm. I won't go into too much detail about this because it was a huge scandal, but he used to work. He founded the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University, and he got a bunch of attention for studies showing that uh, little behavioral changes and stuff can change eating patterns. So, like saying things like having a larger bowl of food at a Super Bowl party causes you to ingest more calories, or that things like um, cookbooks and restaurants are all kind of scheming to make you eat more hmm. you can argue that yes restaurant portions here in america are huge monstrous um, which sometimes is awesome but yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can get like several meals out of a single meal totally you bring true home leftovers totally you just don't eat it all but he was trying to show things like the fact that certain cookbooks like the joy of the joy of cooking was trying to make you eat just way too much food and like making publishing all these studies showing well you all these scram- things. descramble the letters in it says hail scenes exactly and um hail satan's j <laughs> yep hail h-a-y-l i guess and the h came from i'm not sure where it's like the greek a with a line over it i guess <laughs> yeah the yeah because the h it wouldn't be in there but oh the oh there you go perfect okay. i was like where the h come from yeah i was okay i wasn't we even ready it. to perfect. start yeah we yeah. figured it out science go on <laughs> Ultimately, he was just doing a lot of like statistical looks at different stuff mm-hmm. and trying to find patterns mm-hmm. and really only looking for the data that followed certain patterns. Mm-hmm. And then that ended up put, um, putting out some kind of cool stuff. It was like a lot of just massaging the data to fit a certain narrative. And then when the conclusions of that seemed to be really exciting, people would really latch on to a lot of news stories about it and stuff. He just kept going down that path. In the end, he ended up having multiple papers. Um, he's He's been fired from uh, Cornell, or at least he had to resign. or something. He's gone. He's not doing that anymore. Had to retract like six or more um, peer-reviewed Oof. papers. And Ouchie. that doesn't sound like a big deal if you don't do peer-reviewed stuff. Peer-reviewed papers, it's a whole process where you did research, and then people who are in a field similar to yours read over your stuff because they ostensibly are also experts on it and can determine whether or not what you did is valid. And oftentimes they have this bloodlust to just prove that you don't know what you're doing. They, they want to slap you around for thinking yeah. you're going to publish this thing. And then once you get past that point, say you satisfy them, say, you know, I did a good job. Trust, like, see, like, look at all the different things I did to try and make sure this is done right. And they finally agree. The editor will put it out. To have a paper then be retracted, it's like, it's, oh, yeah. oh, you did something really wrong and you fooled people who shouldn't have been fooled and that's a bad thing. It just, so that's a yeah. huge red mark on your record to have a Absolutely. single paper retracted. To have a bunch of your papers retracted, that's it's, real uh, bad. Yeah, your career is pretty much done. Yes. And so the whole thing there was that, yeah, the kind of the siren song of following data the way you want it to go. The way you want it to go. It can well, lead down a dark, well said, a dark path. Yeah. and. In this case, it seemed like he was conscious of what he was doing. It's not always the case. But overall, it turns out that we as humans do some iteration of this kind of thinking all the time in almost every part of our day. Absolutely. So how does this work? Why are we so susceptible to this kind of con or this kind of reasoning accident, one could say, of of getting oneself into a position where you're either buying David Politis' stuff or getting your papers retracted because you... <laughs> totally let your biases win out. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it turns out we may think we're more rational than we actually are. Humans are in many ways less a species defined by rational thought and more a species defined by the ability to believe, to delight in narrative. Case in point, we believe we are rational. <laughs> Knowledge comes with an objective proof. When we know a thing, we understand its cause and or its effect in the world, and we can explain or demonstrate this to others in a highly objective manner. There is no objective form of rationality. Rationality is itself a concept humans created to describe a particularly <laughs> algorithmic form of thought. So Ed Lake wrote a great 2014 article about exactly this quandary in the awesome and highly thought-provoking online magazine Aeon. If you guys haven't checked this thing out, definitely do if you enjoy, you know, sort of deep dive articles. He shows how being quote-unquote strictly logical in the pure rational sense is probably nowhere near as automatic or even adaptive as what we actually do when confronted with information in our day-to-day -day lives. Here are just a few excerpts from that article. During the development of game theory and decision theory in the mid-20th century, a rational person in economic terms became defined as a lone individual whose decisions were calculated to maximize self-interest and whose preferences were, logically or mathematically, consistent in combination and over time. It turns out that people are not, in fact, rational in this way. Given choices between complex bets, for example, people often prefer mathematically inferior ones. Potential losses seem to loom more heavily in our minds than equally potential gains. The thorny question is whether these widespread departures from the economic definition of rationality should be taken to show that we are irrational, or whether they merely show that the economic definition of rationality is defective. Here's a practical example for everyone listening. Oh, my a word. practical example. Yes, my word's not his. <laughs> a woman named Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now, which of these two statements is more probable? One, Linda is a bank teller. Two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. I'll just give everyone a moment to come to a conclusion at home. Text your answers to super duper. <laughs> a majority of people say that two is more probable, that Linda is a bank teller and an active feminist. It turns out answer two cannot be more probable than answer one in the statistical sense. Since there are many more bank tellers, the feminist ones, plus all the rest, then there are just specifically feminist bank tellers. Primed by what is, from a strictly logical standpoint, irrelevant information about Linda's personality, we make an so-called irrational judgment. But this does not take into account some important nuances. Consider what the philosopher Paul Grice would have called the conversational implicature of the puzzle as it's posed. I like that word, implicature. Yeah. Essentially meaning the puzzle's implied agreed-upon meaning. Mm-hmm. So, according to Grace, people will naturally assume that the information about Linda's personality is being given to them because it is relevant. Mm. And it is this aspect that leads them to infer a definition of probability that is different from the strict mathematical one. Giving the mathematical answer would render the personality sketch pointless. Tellingly, the psychologists Ralph Hertwig and Gerd Gigerenzer reported in 1999 that when you give people the same puzzle and ask them to guess about relative frequencies instead of what is more probable, they give the mathematically correct answer much more often, namely that Linda is a bank teller alone, not that she's also a feminist. Hmm. One might add that if we are talking plausibility, the notion that Linda is a bank teller and an active feminist fits the whole story better. Arguably, therefore, it is a perfectly rational inference. All the available information is now consistent. End of article quotes. Mm -hmm. So rather than coming to strictly logical conclusions, we humans tend to make rational inferences using all the infra information we have available. And this is perfectly functional and even rational method for of cognition in most scenarios. Hmm. But this also explains how Politis gets the conspiratorial traction that he does. As long as we are bought into his premise he can target and manipulate our tendency to automatically make logical inferences to achieve his con. Mm. So that kind of gives us a, a bunch of background and understanding of what exactly is going on in our brains and in 
David's approach to this stuff and all the different contexts we should know for what makes Missing 411 the way it is. So, if it's not Sasquatch, or aliens, or elemental spirit shenanigans, or whatever other mysterious or strange conclusion the 411 hype may lead folks to believe, then why the hell are these people disappearing? Right. Turns out the outdoors can be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) And when people in North America go outside for an excursion of some sort... They often go to national parks because that's what those are for. <laughs> and then accidents happen because of friggin' Murphy and his goddamn law. Murphy! So you have these deaths and disappearances clustering around national parks because people are there and nature can be rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Outside Magazine posted an article a few years ago looking at total deaths in national parks between 2006 and 2016. They said, quote, The number one overall cause of death is drowning followed by motor vehicle crashes and slips or falls, according to Jeffrey Olson, public affairs officer at the National Park Service in Washington, D.C. They then list the top 10 deadliest parks of the previous decade based (laughs) on the over 1,000 accidental deaths that occurred there in that time. I wonder where Acadia placed on that. I don't know that it was on there. I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, The gist was that freak accidents can happen to even the most experienced hikers and climbers, and often this involves falling off of cliffs or into water or both. In addition, as we touched on last week with regards to poor little David Martin, large wilderness areas unfortunately can also make for very effective hunting grounds for murderers as well, so it's possible that abductions are occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hear about that in much more detail in, I believe, every single podcast that there is. <laughs> so sure, an abduction by a killer could explain why a person would vanish and never be found. It could even explain the bizarre reappearance of their body in an area that was already searched. True. But this, of course, still doesn't explain all of the disappearances. It's not just happening in every single instance. Um, what about people never being found or turning up just so far from where they went missing? Like the, the weird little aspects of what, what makes 411 so enticing. Mm-hmm. For better understanding of this, let's take a look at standard research and rescue procedures for wilderness disappearances like these. Mm. Handily enough, I found a solid description of this in a different article from the magazine Outside. Just total coincidence <laughs> that it happened to be them again. <laughs> it starts with someone first reporting somebody missing. In most states in the U.S., this report ultimately goes to the local sheriff's department. Uh, from there, an initial investigation confirms the validity of the report. Officials want to confirm that the person is truly missing before launching an actual search. So how long have they been gone? Can they be tracked down somewhere else? It's not uncommon for folks to be totally fine and they just haven't checked in yet or something. Uh, once it seems pretty likely that the person is indeed unaccounted for, the search starts in earnest. A smallish team may physically begin combing the person's last known location, while others do some pretty cool research to figure out the highest probability areas to search. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they're able to narrow this down, they send volunteers out in droves. Depending on the available resources, it could be between hundreds and even sometimes thousands of people going around everywhere. Sometimes helicopters are involved. Mm-hmm. Whatever they can do to try and find a person. They start in more obvious places like trails and cabins and stuff like that. They move on to areas where someone might have ended up from there. All the while, they're still ultimately limited by places they are reasonably able to actually access. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't, you know, walk up vertical walls and stuff like that. They have to go where they can go and then assume that the person Not can only go to the same place. What? Not yet, at least. Uh, depending on the situation, more extreme methods of getting around may come into play. So ropes and mountaineering equipment may get deployed. <laughs> Paul Anderson, who worked for the National Park Service for 42 years, says, quote, Our stats show 85% of all lost people are found within the first 12 hours and 97% are found within the first 24 hours. Mm. So after that, basically, shit gets kind of grim for the remaining 3%. As time goes on, it gets less and less likely that they'll be found. Right. Uh, Luckily, I mean, the upside is that most people are found in a day. Oh, yeah. 97% is nothing to sneeze at. Exactly. But yeah, here's the thing. No matter what kind of resources you have at your disposal in a search, you can only cover so much ground. Right. The only way to really guarantee that you'll find the person is to just take like the entire population of the state they're missing from and then start them all at the point where they went missing and have them just all start spreading out from <laughs> that point infinitely <laughs> until they find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even then, you wouldn't be totally sure. Because they would sure eventually they w- be tens or even hundreds of miles between any single person. Yeah. <laughs> the highest probability regions that are chosen for searches are based on a large number of factors about where and when and how fast someone might move, but it's still not certain. Is just what makes the most possible sense. Anderson referred to a case where they managed to ping the missing person's cell phone, which actually can be possible even if it's off. That's crazy. As long as it has battery power and the possibility of some signal. Wow. So location can be triangu- uh, triangulated based on which cell power the signal passes through and give them an idea of 
where they should look. Right. Uh, in spite of all the search team's calculations, what made the most sense for the person to be, missing climber was 60 miles, 60 miles south of where they were searching. Whoa. He was found hang, hanging from a cliff, stung to death by killer bees. Oh, so grim. Yeah. So imagine if that search happened before cell phones. Not only would the poor climber never have been found through their conventional search, but if his body was eventually discovered, how fucking weird would his that death would have looked? That would be bizarre as anything. Yeah. Oh, my God. So this is all to say that search and rescue operations follow a very particular and thorough plan, and even then, nothing is airtight. Right. This does not mean anything paranormal is happening. No, indeed. One more thing to add to that, too, that I'm thinking of now is just how expensive all this stuff is. Maybe you oh, did sure. mention that. I mean, it's largely um, people who are doing it are largely volunteers, but ultimately indeed. there's only so much they can do with any but equipment. But the budget and stuff. is limited yeah. to begin with. And then, right, calling in a helicopter or calling in special, you know, they got to hire these like dog teams and other stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And that all becomes expensive very quickly. And they, they form a whole team. There's someone in charge. They have to make the call eventually to cut it off. And they do that by talking with the family, saying, here's what we've been able to do. You know, you've been helping with the search efforts too. You've seen how it's going. We got to right. make a call. Right. And they don't just say, okay, we're going to stop. They they do consult with the families first. Absolutely. And, and some searches go on in a smaller or reduced yeah. manner. But and yeah. As, and as he said in this article too, he said, if it were up to the volunteers doing the searching, it would never stop. Right. Right. So there you go. People go missing. Folks look for them. Most of the time they find them. Sometimes they don't. And that's very sad. It's very sad. And it's that sad space in which Politis is making the bacon. Mm-hmm. But let's let David close us out on this section today. Uh, Here's one final clip from that same interview. Pay attention to how he sums up his own mess, how he makes on-the-spot exaggerations about the number of readers (laughs) of his books, and overall just generally takes himself down as he tries to articulate his reality. (laughs) It is perfect nonsense. So there's been six missing 411 books, about 2,500 pages written. And I probably have said this many times in interviews, but if you listen to every interview I've ever done, you're probably going to glean maybe 3 to 5% of what's in the books. And we have a lot of tables, a lot of graphs, a lot of data. We have lists that I encourage people to look at in the back of the books and try to make some sense out of it. And the truth is, is that of the people who have read the six books, and there's been hundreds, if not thousands, tens of thousands, Nobody has ever read the six books and come back to me and said, I have the formula. I understand what happened. Here's what it is. (laughs) Everyone, I I could say probably I've had 500 people or a thousand people write to me in the last three years and say, I've watched all your videos. I know exactly what it is. And, you know, off the top of my head, I can answer them quickly and said, yeah, but what about this, 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 and this? Oh, I didn't know about that. Or what about this, 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 and this? Oh, I didn't even know about that. And the truth is, is that the people that have read the six books will come back and say, you know, I initially thought that it might have been A, but then this, this, and this happened, and so it can't be A. (laughs) And yet all the profile points are consistent, so we know that they have to be interrelated. The only thing I will say is that I'm sitting in my room right now looking at the cluster map, is that 80% approximately of all of the clusters are within 150 miles of a huge body of water. Namely, the clusters run from north to south through the Cascades and down through the Sierras on the west coast, and then from north to south along the east coast through the Appalachian Appalachian Trail, and then there's clusters all the way around the Great Lakes. I hope that this cluster map says Pepe Sylvie on it. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah these clusters with bodies of water specifically on the east and west coasts highlights how water and not population density is a key element in the disappearances and people not being able to put together one answer from reading all of his cases is not because one thing can't explain every single missing person's case it's because there is no normal answer there is none and i guess we'll never really know Mm. so that is the whole missing 411 phenomenon uh, in a, a two-episode, super-duper-stitious kind of uh, look at that stuff. Indeed, a special report, as one might say. Yeah, I might. And next I week. but I would have. <laughs> never go next back. Next time I will. Just stay tuned. Another 20 to 50 episodes from now. <laughs> next week, we'll be talking about supernatural and or paranormal places, yeah. spots purported to exist or feature strange qualities to generally just be weird. 
So stay tuned for that. Yeah, getting back into some just good old creepy paranormally stuff like that. Oh, and uh, so good. If you enjoyed today's episode or this two-parter or just any of the stuff we do, please do rate us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you enjoy listening. There are enough of you listening that uh, and apparently every week that, uh, yeah, why don't you just tell us? It? You seem no like, excuses, it seems guys. It like you like it or at least don't hate it. So uh, say it. Make it official. That's right. Boost our, boost our proof. Yeah, you're not. You won't do it. <laughs> Bro, you won't. Bro, you won't. <laughs> uh, also, a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Those of you who are maybe thinking about supporting the show, please do. There are a lot of fun perks in it for you, and you'll be helping us continue to grow the show. So, yeah. thank you all. Thank you very much. And, um, Catch bye. you next week. Bye. Blood.